You can be seated. We live in a Christian culture that uses the cross of Christ as a means to get what we really want in this world. We, we use Christ to get everything that we want. That is, in our Christian culture. In church, I want us to be a church that doesn't use Christ to get everything that we want, but that we look to Christ as everything that we want. Because Christ is everything. And when I say that, in no way, shape, or form do I belittle the triunity of our God. God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God the Father is glorious. And God the Spirit is glorious. And God the Father has decided in His sovereign, um, omniscient desires and will to receive glory through making everything about His Son, Jesus. And God the Spirit has demonstrated His godness, His deity, by saying that my role is to put a spotlight on God the Son. And so everything is about Christ, and in no way does that diminish the greatness and the glory of God the Father and God the Spirit. But church, I just want you to know that everything is about Christ. Jesus Christ is everything in creation. The Scripture tells us that. But I want you to know that, that nothing that was made in creation was made apart from the creative work of Jesus Christ. If you think of it in terms of the sun and the stars and the moon and the clouds, and think of it in terms of this planet and the seas and the rivers and the streams and the mountains and the flat grounds and the grass, if you think of it in terms of even as small of things as fish and the scales on the fish and the fins of the fish, if you think of it even in terms of the smallness of tiny animals, Jesus Christ created every one of those animals' hearts, organs, <coughs> brains even. And then, in his crowning achievement, Christ created mankind. He created us in a way different from every other thing that humanity possesses the very dignity of God. The, the image of God. And Christ did that. Christ is everything in creation because the Father gave to the Son the creative power to make all things. And nothing exists apart from the creative work of Jesus Christ. If you think of it in terms of our own experience, church, our, our ability to see beauty, 
Our ability to feel love and affection. Our ability to hear wonderful music that is sweet to the sound. Our ability to taste food that is sweet or salty or a combination of both. Or our ability to touch things and feel the roughness or the smoothness. All of our senses we owe to the creative power of Jesus Christ. He's everything in creation. And He's also everything in history. He's everything even in the fall. Our representatives in the garden, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the serpent. And the serpent effectively drew them into sin, casting the world into a curse and humanity into a curse. And even in that moment... God comes in and speaks directly to the serpent and says, yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Christ is. So even what looked to be the the darkest moment of history, God, the Father, shows that it's all about Christ. Christ is everything in the history of God's people. If you... Think in terms of us looking back upon the history of God's people through the lens of the cross work of Jesus, then what we will see is that when Abraham was offering up his son Isaac up on the altar because God had told him to, and then all of a sudden God provides a ram that's caught in a thicket so that the ram can be sacrificed instead of his own son, we can look at that now and say that is a prefiguring of what Jesus Christ would do for us. When we think of the people of Israel caught in bondage, in slavery, under the hard hand of Pharaoh, and they cry out to God, and God sends them Moses... If you can remember, in that, the, at the foot of Mount Horeb, it says that the angel of the Lord called out to Moses. Do you know who the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord is right there? It is none other than the pre-incarnate revelation and voice of Jesus Christ calling out to Moses. And he says, the ground on which you walk is holy ground. And then when Moses begins to lead the people out, there is that Passover time in which the lamb is slain and the blood is put over the doorpost. And everybody who has the blood over the doorpost is spared the loss of their own child. Why? Because the blood covered over. And as we look through the cross back to history, we see that that was prefiguring and foretelling the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything is about Christ because even as the leaders of God's people begin to display reigning over Israel, like, say, Samuel, and and then Saul, and then David, people look to Saul and they say, oh, we've got this great king. 
We've got this wonderful, tall, strong, strapping young man who is going to lead us into salvation. And it's not very long until we see that this king has major flaws and that he cannot lead us into the land, into the place, into the promises that we had hoped. And so we replace that king and we get King David. And in fact, he has a a heart after God. He is a man after God's own heart, the scripture even says. We say, oh, in him it's going to be awesome. He slays the, the giant Goliath. Oh, we're going to have salvation in him. But year upon year builds upon. And what does David do? He shows that even though he has a heart for God, he himself is a sinner. And he falls into sin and he commits grievous, heinous transgressions against God's people and against God himself. And we can even see in the kings that God has set up that we need a better king, that we need a better leader, that we need one who is holy and righteous and powerful altogether. And when we look through the lens of the cross, we can see that Christ, that everything about reigning over God's people has to be done in someone better than the leaders that we put in place. And then we see that everything is about Christ when the culture of Israelite worship is quiet, it's dark, it's actually depressed because they're of, Rome, of the Roman Empire oppressing the Jewish people, and all of a sudden enters in a virgin-born son, Jesus of Nazareth. And he lives this perfect, holy, righteous, fulfilling every one of God's righteous demands life. So that when people are around him, they hear the words of God. When people experience his ministry to them, they feel the power of God. So that when people listen to his sermons, they can actually detect that these are, yes, the very words of God. And he loves beautifully and he ministers graciously and he acts powerfully everywhere that he goes so that we can see that everything that God is about is found in this man, Jesus Christ. And yet, of course, people hated him. They were jealous of him. They had envy of him. And so he is betrayed, he is lied about, he is ridiculed and blasphemed and carried over and beaten to a pulp. And once he is beaten and then mocked again and stripped and made fun of, he is forced to go all the way up to the top of Calvary, Golgotha it is, the place of a skull, and nails are put in his hands and in his feet and a crown of thorns around his head and Jerusalem and visitors from all over the empire have gathered together to watch Christ die. And as he dies, he's not paying for his own sins because he has none. He's paying for the sins of people like you and me and he pays the penalty for our sins so that when he's on the cross, He experiences hell on our behalf. And when His work of substitutionary payment for the righteous wrath of Almighty God is done, He cries out, it is finished. They take Him off of the cross. 
and they put him in a tomb. And on the third day, while everyone is expecting it to be over, he powerfully, amazingly, unbelievably rises from the dead. And he defeats hell and death and darkness and all of the things that that kind of have a reign over us. He defeats all of them by coming back from the dead and is resurrected. And he ultimately ascends into heaven where right now he is at the right hand of God the Father. And this is what he does is he mediates, he advocates for sinners like you and me. And Christ is everything even right now because all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our successes and all of our victories and everything in between is going to go to exalt who Christ is such that one day, one day, the clouds will part and Christ will return. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in hell, in hell people will experience an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth and suffering in the outer darkness. Because they have not seen and savored the glory of Jesus Christ. And in eternity forever in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, people will be singing and praising this Christ and they will say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and praise and honor and strength forever because He has redeemed men to God. And for eternity future... Everything will be about Jesus Christ. It will be beautiful and wonderful and splendid and dignified and holy and sweet and glorious. Everything from eternity past to eternity future is all about Christ. Everything is. There is nothing that we do that will, ultimate, that will not ultimately tend toward the glory of Christ. So if you are a, a non-Christian who doesn't trust Christ, who doesn't love Christ, who rebels against Christ, then ultimately your rebellion will glorify Christ in hell as you have to pay the penalty for the sins that you could have trusted Christ to pay the penalty for. If you trust Christ and you love Him, Christ will be glorified in the fact that you trust Him and not in yourself. And for all of eternity, Christ will be magnified in His worth rather than in your own. Everything is about Christ. And it goes all the way down to the the manner in which we live and the words that we speak to people, the thoughts that we have, the, the way in which we approach our job, the way in which we approach our neighbors, the way in which we approach our children, children, the way in which we approach our parents and our classmates, it boils all the way down to the kinds of shows that we watch and the music that we listen to and the way that we relate to people in the community. Christ will receive glory and honor and praise through 
All of those things, everything tends toward the glory of Christ. It's all about Him. And church, when we begin to look at salvation and how salvation is accomplished and through whom salvation is accomplished, we need to understand that we must not put Christ in this tiny little box as if He is a tool that we can pull out in this box and use to get what we need to get from Him and then put Him back in the box. Listen, Christ is not a tool. Christ is not an instrument. Christ is just not one piece of the pie. Christ is everything. And so with that, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3, where we will look at Christ alone in salvation from Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that is one sentence when Paul wrote it originally. One sentence. And so what I want to do right now is I want to read it again, and I'm just going to read it a little bit slower, and I would like for you to just take note of a few concepts. Take note of the righteousness of God. Take note of the times that it refers to Jesus Christ. And take note of what God, the one who is righteous, does. What does He do through Christ? You don't have to write these things down. It's just simply just take note of God's righteousness, take note of God's Son, and take note of what God has done through Christ. I'll read it slowly. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation 
by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If we wanted to shrink that sentence, which happens to be six verses, we could shrink it down into one statement. We could say that God demonstrates His righteousness by saving sinners who trust in Christ. God demonstrates His righteousness by saving sinners who trust in Christ. That would be the big idea of this passage. I want to give you four statements that maybe summarize what this passage is saying and how it relates to salvation in Christ alone. The first statement that I want to make today is that the Word of God points us to Christ alone. The Word of God points us to Christ alone. Hey, Cody, would you be willing to um, give me my water bottle right there, bud? Thank you. The Word of God points us to Christ alone. Look at verse 21. It says the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown, it's been revealed. Like God is showing the world His righteousness. And church, is He showing the world His righteousness through the law at this, at this place? What is He showing it? Apart from the law. Well now, this, this really is going to shock the system of Jewish people who have taken the 613 laws that they have found in the Old Testament and then almost multiplied them by two to, to make laws so that they could have laws for the laws that God has made so that they could make sure that they themselves could keep the law. So that if a Jew was reading this passage, like, wait a minute, no, the righteousness of God is revealed through the law. And no, Paul says, no, it's manifested apart from the law. And then he says, although the law and the prophets Bear witness to it. And so we have to ask the question, okay, if the righteousness of God is being demonstrated not in the law, or should I say through the law, then how is it that the law itself bears witness to the fact that the righteousness of God is being demonstrated? Well, that's why I gave you the introduction that I did. Because the Apostle Paul is saying that if you read the law, you will see that line by line and paragraph by paragraph and book by book is pointing to the saving righteousness of God through one who is to come. In other words, when you read Genesis 18, God is pointing forward and saying there's going to be a greater ram, a greater lamb who's going to be slain. When you read through First and Second Samuel, you need to see that there is a greater king that is going to come who will truly reign in holiness and righteousness and love over his people. When you read Psalm 2 and it says that the Son of God, 
the one who is appointed will reign with all authority over all people and the glory of God will be manifested through this son, then you need to realize that all of this is pointing to Jesus Christ, the one who has come in manifest perfection and in humanity and in deity at the same time. So the word of God points us to Christ alone. God never wanted us to trust in our ability to keep the law to save us. He wanted us to see that while He has given us the law of God and He's given us the Ten Commandments, you shall, you know, you, you shall um, not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. You, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You see those first four tenets of the law. And then you live your life and you're like, man, I have worshipped other things other than God. I have been an idolater. I've placed more importance on my spouse or on my kids than I, than I have even my God. And, and sure enough, I have, I have violated God's holiness left and right. And what He is wanting to show us through His law is that we cannot keep it, therefore we cannot be saved by it. And it's pointing us to something that is better and greater and more solid than our ability to keep the law. You realize that if we depended on our ability to obey God's law, every single one of us would have a home place in hell. And so the, the Word of God points us to Christ alone. And it's not, okay, believe in the work of Christ and keep the Ten Commandments. Church, I, I still cringe and I still shudder when I'm driving down the road and I see on the back of a person's car a bumper sticker that says, Keep the Ten Commandments. Why do I shudder? Because it's impossible. We can't do it. And if, we, and if we try to do it without trusting in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the righteousness of the Ten Commandments, then none of us will go to heaven. None of us will be able to praise God in eternity in the heavenlies. Why? Because we're trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, at every turn in his letters, says the Word of God points us to Christ alone. And second... It's very similar to this in concept, but the glory of God points us to Christ alone. The glory of God does. He says in verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we're not gonna, I'm not going to go back and, and kind of go from 118 through 321, which I could for you this morning to show you what Paul has done over the last two chapters after he, after he had made this statement, he says, I can't wait to come to Rome and preach the gospel to you. Man, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God to salvation for everybody who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the just shall live by faith. He says that in Romans 1.17. And then from that point forward, you know what he, he indicates? He indicates that nobody lives by faith. That nobody's righteous. He immediately says, listen, God has revealed himself to everybody. Everybody knows that God is powerful, that he's great, that he's mighty, that he has good moral quality. And then he says, everybody rejects the revelation of God. 
So they look at the glory of God and they turn their back on the glory of God and they want to live for the glory of themselves. And they exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of the creation. And then he goes on and says, hey, even the Jews who have the word of God, they they just have the law of God bearing witness that they're even themselves lawbreakers such that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he basically summarizes everything he said in two chapters. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world. The whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you see, everybody who had the Old Testament knew that life was about the glory of God. They knew that God was gaining glory for himself, that that's what this whole thing was about. But they sought to do it in their own power. And then they turned it on themselves and And I want to tell you something about the human heart. Even though the Jews had the scriptures and they knew that life was about the glory of God, the way that they teased it out in their day-to-day life, they made rules and rituals and a way to live a lifestyle such that instead of giving God glory through a spirit of thankfulness, gratitude, and joy in a good God, Who did they themselves try to glorify in the way that they did religion? Themselves. They set up a religious system to glorify themselves. Now, now this is the tricky thing, church. Please listen to me here. This This is applicational. If you would have asked a good Jew, like a Pharisee or someone, and and you'd have said, what is life all about? They likely would have said the glory of God. But in their heart of hearts, They sought to bring glory to themselves by heaping praise on their religiosity and so that other people in the temple or at the synagogue or even in their neighborhood would say, Oh, can you believe how holy brother so-and-so is or sister so-and-so is? Oh, it's it's not me. It's, it's, It's all him, they would say. But they would love the praise that would be heaped on them because they were no different than the Gentiles The Gentiles worship themselves through irreligiosity, whereas the Jews worship themselves through religiosity. But the deal was still the same. They broke the glory of God. They, They, in a sense, defiled the glory of God. They would not glorify God, and the glory of God would not have it. You see, um... If you and I even say with a bit of genuineness, I know I, I know I don't have a lot, and I know I'm not very good, and I know I've made some mistakes, but I'm just going to give God my best, and I hope that'll give Him some glory. If you say that, apart from the person and the work of Christ, I want you to know that even that intention does not give glory to God. It actually breaks the the glory of God. It says, you know what? No, you're still going to try to get glory because you're going to do something about it. You're going to work your way up or you're going to do some good things. You're going to have good character and good works and good morals such that somehow you will bring glory to God in yourself. And God is showing us from beginning to end that there's no way you can bring glory to God apart from Jesus Christ, His Son. 
Say, so the glory of God points us to Christ alone by saying, your goodness and your works and your efforts will not cut it. All have sinned, whether it's Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we've defined glory of God many times, church. It is the infinite splendor and holiness of Almighty God. It is His, it is his supremeness, his, his set-apartness, His sinlessness, combined with His beauty and His love and His mercy and His grace, all in one. It is the infinite worth of God. And we've fallen short of that. And so it, it points us to Christ and Christ alone. You see, we can't experience the infinite worth of God. We can't We can't magnify the infinite worth of God on our own. We've got to do it through Christ. So the word of God points us to Christ alone. The glory of God points us to Christ alone. And the work of God points us to Christ alone. By the work of God, I want us to look at three terms that Paul uses to to show the layers of salvation, the, the means of salvation that we have, church. So if you look at the text, it says that we are justified by His grace as a gift, that we are redeemed through Christ, and that God put forward Christ as a propitiation. We see justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, I... I will freely admit, church, that this passage, like I sent you via text message yesterday, it is a technical, theological passage. And that's not something that we shy away from, but what we want to be is we want to be clear. We want to be plain so that everybody can understand Christ and what all Christ has done in the work of God. And so what Paul tells us is that there are really three things here that Christ has accomplished for us. All right, and the very first one is justification in verse 24. Now, the first thing that Paul would want us to do is to kind of transpose our minds into a courtroom, into a court of law, in which we are the defendants, we are the accused, we are actually the guilty ones, and there is a judge. And we know we're guilty. The judge knows we're guilty. All we're doing is waiting for the sentence of guilty and then the punishment that comes from that sentence. And and we're sitting here nervous and struggling and feeling like our life is about to come to an end because we're either going to receive the death penalty or we're going to receive life without parole. And we know it. Everybody in the courtroom knows it. Because this is a law term, it is a court term, and Paul turns it and says, this is exactly what Christ has done. Christ has come in, and He has put His life on the docket, rather than your life. And He has come in and says, I will take the punishment that you deserve, I will take the sentence that you deserve, I will take everything that you deserve on myself and I will give you everything that I deserve. And God the judge who sits up at the top with the gavel in his hand looks at Christ and says, I'll accept that. And so 
His righteousness becomes now your righteousness, and your sinfulness now becomes Christ, and it's poured out on Him. The guilt of that is poured out on Him on the cross so that if you trust in Christ who steps in the courtroom on your behalf, then you can be justified. You can be declared not guilty in the eyes of God the judge. Paul says this is the part of salvation in Christ alone is that nobody else can step in the courtroom for you and offer that kind of deal. Then Paul goes to a second picture of what it means to be saved, and he says, you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed. So we step outside of the the court of law, and we go out into the marketplace where people are selling and buying and trading. And in particular, he wants us to picture part of the marketplace that is um, practically and personally, it's terrible. He wants us to look at the slave trade, whereby here you are, a slave, and you are in bondage. And you're in bondage to your sin You're in bondage to the darkness and depravity of who you are and the pollution of your acts and your speech. And you know that you're in bondage. And Christ walks up. And and He says, I want to redeem. I want to buy back that slave. I want to purchase that slave. I, I don't want him to be in bondage to those things anymore. And so unshackle that man's hands and unshackle his feet and let him loose because I am buying him back through my work for him on the cross that I will bear. And so we get to walk out of our bondage to sin and we get to walk in the freedom of loving him and serving him and enjoying him our master. And then the third picture that he paints here, church, is in verse 25. It says, God put forward Christ as a propitiation. A propitiation. And so we walk out of the court of law, and then we walk out of the marketplace, and we walk into the temple court. And there's religion going on, and there is all kinds of of worship being had. There's the giving of alms, there's the giving of money for worship and all of that. There's singing and praising and the playing of instruments. And then you walk in further and there is the holy place and then the most holy place. And as you step out and look at the holy place, you want to offer up an offering to appease this righteous God who is vengeful and wrathful against sin. And Paul wants to remind us that the, the blood of bulls and goats can never fully and finally take away our sins. And Christ steps in and He says, I will take away your sin because I am fully God and fully man. I am the only thing, I am the only one who can do what you need to be done. You see, I've got to shed my blood rather than an animal, rather than a bull, a goat, a lamb, or anything else, I've got to shed my blood, which is totally human and totally divine, so that you can have a fully satisfactory sacrifice for a holy God who requires that at the hands of men. And that's exactly what Christ does on the cross. And so church, 
we look down at the text, when we say the work of God points us to Christ alone, it's the work of God in Christ. Read verse 24 and 25 again. All right? For all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith to show us God's righteousness. All right, so the Word of God points us to Christ alone. The glory of God points us to Christ alone. The work of God points us to Christ alone. And then finally, church, the righteousness of God points us to Christ alone. The righteousness of God. This passage, if it has a subject, the subject is the righteousness of God. Look at verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, B, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness. So that He might be, we could say, righteous. And the righteous-er of the one who has faith in Christ. It's the same, same original word there. Just and justifier also means righteous. It's just uh, an adjective and a verb. So the righteousness of God points us to Christ alone. Last week we said that the righteousness of God, or our righteousness, is that which conforms to the holiness and purity of God's standard. That's what we said. And then we said that Martin Luther himself, as he was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17, was just mystified by how it is that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How is it revealed? And church, I'm just going to cut to the chase in this passage. There are two ways in which the righteousness of God is revealed in this passage. And you need to be very clear on the understanding of them. There is the condemning righteousness of God and the saving righteousness of God. You know, when when Paul says that God is righteous and that He's demonstrating His righteousness and that He might, that he's might be righteous or just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus, the question we have to ask and that, that many people do ask is, how is it that God can uphold His righteousness, His holiness, His purity, His 100% pure moral character, and His justice by letting sinners like me and you into heaven. In other words, does God sweep under the proverbial rug all of our sins, all of our idolatry, all of our hatred and anger and malice and envy and disrespectfulness and haughtiness to parents and um, terrible words and taking His name in vain. Does He just take this big, huge rug and sweep it all underneath it and then throws the rug down and just makes sure that nobody looks underneath that rug so that He can still look righteous? No, He does not do that. You see... He says that this work of Christ, this work that He accomplished in Christ, this work of justification, redemption, and propitiation was done so that He might be shown to be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is the thing. He's shown to be just because if you don't put your faith in Jesus, the one who has lived righteously on your account, the one who is purely and perfectly and inherently righteous, okay, if you don't believe in Him, if you don't trust in Him, if you don't let Him walk up at the marketplace and buy you back, if you don't let Him walk into the courtroom and stand in your place and receive your sentence, if you don't let Him walk up into the temple court and be the sacrifice for you, then God will show His justice forever by condemning you in hell. And forever and ever and ever, you will not say, well, I just, you know, I, I didn't live a good enough life. No, what you'll have to say is that I didn't trust in the perfect person and work of the the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Okay. Second, he's the justifier. He shows his righteousness when you're in that courtroom and you say to Jesus, stand in my place. When you're in the marketplace and you're in slavery to sin and you say, buy me back. And when you're in the temple court and you say, I need an acceptable sacrifice. Will you step in my place, Jesus? And when you do that, God shows Himself to be just because He credits to your account the perfectness and the awesomeness and the righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now church, there, um, there doesn't seem to be a ton of excitement about it this morning because I think we all believe it. You know, if you read the Scriptures and you've been a Christian for quite a while, really there's nothing that I've said this morning that, that, that you didn't already know or that you don't already believe. And when we hear doctrine that is true but that we already know we have a tendency to say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yep, I know that. Yep, I'll check that off. But what we oftentimes don't do is we don't, we don't take it and put it into our hearts and into our minds in ways in which we live that doctrine out. And so we have, a, we have an intellectual um, compartment for our doctrine of Christ alone. But we don't have a an emotional compartment. We, we don't have a practical compartment. We, how does that get fleshed out? How, how, does, how does that get walked out in such a way that we don't walk back into idolatry and we don't walk back into the slave house of bondage to our different sins and we don't walk back into uh, the courtroom and try to live a really good life in order to please God for salvation? How does that happen? Well, let me just give you a few applications, church. The first thing I want to ask you to do is every time that you read your Bible, I want to ask you to read your Bible with a view toward Christ. Every time you read your Bible, read it with a view toward Christ. So that whether you pick up Leviticus and you realize, okay, there's a holiness code here. Be holy, for I am holy. Ultimately, that's got to put you in a place where you say, you know what? I'm not holy, and I need to be. There's one who is holy for me. His name is Christ. Or you're reading First and Second Chronicles, 
and you're kind of doing a, a read through the year plan and you're just like, man, there are just a lot of kings who are making a lot of mistakes. And you're just like, what is this? You need to be saying, I need a better king than Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, right? I need a better king. I'm glad I have one in Christ. Let me run to him and worship him and fall at his feet and say, what do you have me to do today, king? It doesn't matter what passage of Scripture you're in. I just want you to read the Word with a view toward Christ. Second, pray to God with a confidence in Christ. Pray to God with a confidence in Christ. Sometimes God says no or wait to our requests. Okay? But when we pray and we know that our salvation is in Christ and we know that Christ is at the right hand of the Almighty, mediating on our behalf, pleading as our advocate, desiring to bring to the Father our every need, our every desire, our every struggle, our every want, our every problem, then we need to know that it is this same Christ who walked into that courtroom, who went into that marketplace, who stepped into the temple court on our behalf. He loves us. He has demonstrated His love for us so that when we pray, we need to be confident that He is going to effectively go to the Father on our behalf. So pray to God with a confidence in the mediation of Christ. And then third, live for the glory of God in the power of Christ. Live for the glory of God and the power of Christ. You know, you are at union with Christ because you're saved in Him. And just as He died physically, your old self died spiritually. And just as He was risen from the dead physically, you've been raised from dead spiritually. And just as you will experience His return in glory, you will also be conformed to His glorious character and church, I just don't think that any Christian should live in a, in a uh, defeated, despondent, powerless life because we have the power of the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior Jesus Christ in whom we have salvation. Let's pray together.